depending on where you get your statistics from for ACL injuries, what 80% of them are non-contact or 70% depends again, where you get your information. Um, but in an interesting study, uh, I think in 2014 on, on soccer players, of those non-contact injuries, uh, a player was one to two meters uh, around that person. So it wasn't like this athlete was just running with a soccer ball, stepped in a hole and fell, tore their knee or something. Um, there was a perceptual aspect to the injury, which I find very interesting. And uh, going further into that study, it found that defensive players were more likely to tear their injury or tore their ACLs than, than offensive players. So something about defending and the chaotic nature of that. So building perception uh, into our, our rehab programs and our prevention program is huge. That was Jeff Moyer, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. It's good to have you guys here. Jeff Moyer is the owner of Dynamic Correspondence Sports Training in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and has been, I believe, the most appeared guest on this show. Jeff has had two solo uh, episodes, or he's been on two solo episodes, and he's been on three roundtables. So this is, I believe, his sixth appearance, and it's for a good reason. Jeff has a wide-ranging expertise, he gets incredible results, and he is one of the most driven individuals I know by learning and being on the cutting edge of the industry, and yet he's also highly practical and results-driven in his coaching and training. Uh, What we're going to be getting into today is kind of the continuum between injury prevention, a performance training program, and reconditioning. And this idea that none of those elements really live in isolation, and they all mirror each other. And Jeff is going to get into the nuts and bolts of some elements of his injury prevention ideals within his performance training program, as well as talking a little bit about his reconditioning process. Jeff has gotten great performance results from his athletes, sprints and sprints and jumps and and athletic performance measures and skill acquisition. And he's also gotten really good results in the reconditioning side. Things like getting female um, ACL surgery or ACL injured athletes back to playing five and a half months post-surgery. Jeff leaves no stone unturned in his process in finding the best way to serve the athletes that are in his care. And so for the show today, we're going to get into the first half is going to be a little bit more on the prevention side of his program within the context of his total training philosophy. He's going to talk about how using a perceptual or perception action type element that is important in injury prevention. It's not just not just forces and stepping on divots in the ground and how the perception feeds into that. He's also going to talk about change of direction, KPIs and indicators and how how technique also plays a hand in uh, not only performance, but injury prevention. The second half of the show, Jeff is going to get into a little bit of philosophy and reconditioning. So talking about some things he uses in the weightlifting realm, in the one by 20 realm, in some some tempos on lifts and, and those elements. He's going to talk about plyometrics and really the nuts and bolts of his rapid reconditioning program and some of the things that he has found effective in getting athletes back to the field to play more quickly and how he works alongside uh, physical therapists uh, working on their end to help athletes just get back really fast. Uh, Finally, he's going to talk about the total motion release system and using contralateral training to improve, uh, to get people out of pain without even putting a hand on them. And so really cool stuff from front to back. Again, Jeff is a guy who is a man of many talents. And I always learn something when I sit down and chat with him. And this episode was no exception. That being said, let's get on to it. Episode 199, Jeff Moyer. Here we go. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Good to have you here, buddy. Joel, thanks for having me back, man. It's uh, it's an honor and a privilege. Yeah, man. It's... uh, I think a lot of us have a lot of different schedules these days, so it's definitely nice to not have to do these at, at quite as odd hours as I did, say, a month ago or two months ago. Uh, but I know this time, and we've been talking about this, so we've talked about this in the aftermath of our last recordings, but um, ACL injury prevention, what do you think about it? What's, um, what's your take on this vast area that a lot of athletes are being ushered into in, in ACL prevention programs? Um. Well, I have an interesting, I think, a little different background than maybe uh, most coaches. Uh, I used to work at a sports medicine orthopedic practice, um, and uh, one of my jobs was the return to play. I was the return to play guy after someone got hurt, went to, saw the ortho, saw the PT, saw the ACT, and then me. And then in the meantime, I also ran their ACL uh, prevention program, which I believe, if I remember correctly, was a six-week program 
where we saw the athletes, I think, twice a week. And we start with this baseline jump test and how they land, and you take a video, and then you put it in this program that they set up, and it gives you these numbers and these drawings of their valgus knee collapse and shows you how shitty they are. And then after six weeks, you redo the exact same test and punch it into the program, and it shows you how great their valgus is. And congratulations, you get a certification. You prevent ACL injuries and la-di-da. And that was literally the whole program. And uh, every workout was just a hodgepodge of just weird stuff, doing various jumps in the middle of the field on a lot of unstable surfaces uh, a lot of closed uh, agility drills to cones and all this stuff. And it was, uh, I don't know, it, I, I was turned off to it then. And the doctor, I think, could see that because I wasn't doing a very good job of promoting, trying to sell it to coaches and stuff. And I'm just the type of person, if it's not in, in me, I, I just can't fake it. Um, so, I, I, yeah, that didn't work out, uh, me working there very long and hence me down here in Pennsylvania. So, um it's an interesting, uh, it's been an interesting journey starting there. Um, and then my work with Dr. Yesis and seeing things from a biomechanical standpoint, uh, with, with stuff and then getting more into the vision and perceptual side of things with Dr. Harrison, um, has really kind of, again, changed my, my view, so to speak. And, and I guess, uh, there's three, I, I kind of categorize it as there's three camps that I see that view injuries and ACLs. There's your movements, uh, people, your perception and action. There's no true biomechanic structure. Uh, everything's based off of perception, uh, to the environment, to the organism or uh, from the organism and, um, and, and the task of what's going on. There are the other type of movement people that look at, uh, you know, range of motion and use movement screens and this and that and do everything in closed environments and then you kind of got your strength camp that is hey let's work on the uh the uh the eccentric and the isometrics and that will take care of their ability to decelerate and land um and for me it's kind of i try to use all of it the answer is always in the middle so i always i try to look at it all um when it comes to preventing injuries uh i don't really start any which way i just kind of just kind of use all of it um you know, but what's what's interesting to me that not a lot of people talk about. So, depending on where you get your statistics from for ACL injuries, what eighty percent of them are non-contact or seventy percent depends again where you get your information. Um, but in an interesting study, uh, I think in two thousand fourteen on on soccer players, of those non-contact injuries, uh, a player was one to two meters uh, around that person. So it wasn't like this athlete was just running with a soccer ball, stepped in a hole, and fell tore the knee or something, um, there was a perceptual aspect to the injury, which I find very interesting. And uh, going further into that study, it found that defensive players were more likely to tear their injury or tore their ACLs than, than offensive players. So something about defending and the chaotic nature of that. So building perception uh, into our, our rehab programs and our prevention program is huge. Now, um, I also kind of think it's it's crap to say that we have a prevention program and a rehab program whatever i think it's just all one of the same um i I look at athletes whether they're hurt or not kind of i put them in the same boat i I think a a prevention program is just some kind of sales pitch that doctors use to create these programs to make money or that some organizations use to say hey we have doctor's approval from this so that gives them some kind of credibility to sell this bullshit um, it's just one and the same. Um, so my philosophy with working, whether it's a uh, prevention or it's with someone who's torn their ACL and we're trying to rehab them back, I really don't, it's, it's really not much different. Um, it should be one, one thing, one thing only is, which is performance and getting them better. And, you know, if they're hurt, then we got to get them to be, be able to perform. And if they are performing, then we got to make sure that they stay able to perform. And that's, that's really it. Um, yeah. So. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, right on. And so let's kind of dig into it. You mentioned like different areas that you hit the problem from. Uh, and, and I totally agree with you also in the sense of how easy is it to have one metric saying, you know, knee valgus or knees 
I, I mean, and there's a difference as well, as we've talked about on this podcast between knees coming in the athletic version, knees in for the win and true Valgus knees in to lose. And I mean, of course, what parent's going to know the difference, right? If you just tell a parent, hey, your kid's got this going on. Oh, that's wrong. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it just makes it an easy sale. And I think that about I've even heard. I've heard things about people who will do movement screens on incoming athletes too and tell the parents, oh, your child had, it's like, here, come for this free movement screen or whatever. And then oh, your child is XYZ wrong with them. So train with us. And it just ways to, yeah. t- just ways to tell people that there's something wrong with your athlete is, um, I, I don't know. It probably works well in marketing, but ethically, I'm not really sure how good of an idea that, especially too, just saying something's wrong. But anyways, I, I it got me thinking too, the idea too, of and I was reading about this in Dr. Mark Bubbs's book Peak, but the systems thinking, where a linear thinking or linear thought process would be just it's just like a math equation, just one factor for the most part, and there's there's one metric, and in that case, the cal- very calculated data approach could be very effective. But as soon as you have multiple systems, and our body's a system of systems, you have a lot of things going on then that more calculated mathematical approach doesn't work as well anymore and you need a different kind of thinking. And I think that's where a coach who can see it all comes in really well. And so I, I like how you see that from a multifaceted approach. So let's dig into those. Uh, perhaps let's start with particularly the, um, let's start with the perception piece because I found that really fascinating that you said the defense, it's defensive more than offensive, which would tell me that it's someone who is, reacting to and again there's going to be an infinite amount of different reactions that you can make for the most part but there is probably different anagrams and different like similarities and things like that but you would imagine that based off what you said at two meters it's two meters you're defensive you're reacting to something that perhaps you weren't prepared for from a perceptual space uh, standpoint and then you find your body in a bad position that it's not ready to handle Um, talk about what you're doing in developing athletes from that standpoint yeah, so uh, we do uh, we do an eye a, a visual assessment, sports vision assessment, um, using different uh, tools and metrics. Um, with that, uh, had a synaptic uh, sensory station that uh, um, looks at uh, eight eight visual uh, abilities: uh, acuity, dynamic acuity, contrast sensitivity, peripheral awareness, multiple object tracking, contrast sensitivity. This and that, but then also, um, and that's general, uh, you know, that's on a computer screen. Uh, I, we also do uh, kind of a, a peripheral vision field view. So I have this gomeometer looking thing that an athlete holds on their forehead like a dunce cap. And then there's this little thing that I move all the way to the right and all the way to the left. And the athlete just tells me when they can't see it in their peripheral view anymore. And on the top of the device, it just tells me the range of motion. And so I'm able to uh, quantify, uh, athletes peripheral view from their right to the left. And if there's a difference, um, you know, then that's something we try to address. I really don't care too much about what the total number is. I try to look for differences. Um, and then we look at, uh, binocularity, which is the ability for the brain to take information out of both eyes. Um, just because I can see you here on my Skype doesn't necessarily that the brain's taking information out of both eyes and binocularity is the precursor to stereoscopic vision, uh, or depth perception, which is the ability to see things in three dimensions. Uh, depth perception is the ability to judge speeds and distance of things, but there's also space perception and height perception. So knowing how far away someone is or something or how high it is. So a sport like basketball, baseball, softball tennis, uh, those are important abilities. So, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look at those. And then another thing that it's not so much a test, it's just kind of drills we do, but you know, I can kind of judge right away how shitty someone's going to be is information processing, visual information processing. So for instance, um, when we think, uh, our brain and our eyes are going to do one of two things, right? If I give you right now, you're staring at the screen, Joel, if I said spell California backwards, Right. One of two things are going to happen. One, you're going to your eyes are going to start looking all over the place because you're thinking about uh, what I just asked you to do. Or two, you kind of block out what you're looking at right now and you try to picture the words in your head. And that's one of the issues with conscious thinking and playing sports. 
so we'll work on drills. We're trying to control those and separate those, uh, the ability to think and see at the same time. Because um, sometimes, again, that's uh, a theory that Dr. Harrison and I would talk about is, you know, you're on defense and now you're trying to think about what the player is going to do. And, and again, something like that can go awry and, you, you know, your visual field's thrown off or, or you miss what's going to happen and your body has to try to make up for it and you get yourself in shitty positions. So those are all things that uh, we do. And that's also part of our, our rehab process as well. With, uh, with, yeah, that's, that's awesome stuff, man. Very, uh, I'll have to take, make, take a trip out to your place sometime. Cause, uh, just to, ex- I feel like this is something with the visual, uh, the, this type of training. I think the Brock string is a very simple and straightforward thing. A lot of coaches are, have some familiar with mm-hmm. it, familiarity with at least, but, um, it'd be cool to see all the tools and techniques. It, it definitely makes sense. Like there's, that's like almost more, I mean, it's software, right? But if you look at the whole picture of perception reaction, it's almost like more of the hardware side of it. I feel like if you were to say that, like, can you, yeah. your, what's your capacity to see? And then let's put it into maybe some field-based work. Do you do, do you do any field-based work? Like in any space? I think I've seen you have a little space outside of your gym. Like you get outside and do any type of situations, uh, general situations to try to improve decision-making or just general perceptual. Yeah, values. absolutely. Yeah. So uh, kind of start, um, depending on where the athlete is in the, in their training or rehab process. So, uh, I'll kind of touch upon both. So last year I rehabbed a, uh, uh, a soccer player. Uh, she was cleared to play in five and a half months after surgery by her doctors. Um, and she was back playing. Um, it wasn't like a slow process. They kind of, she jumped back in her and her family wanted to get right back into it. She had some, uh, major soccer tournaments she wanted to get ready for. Um, so her process was more general to specific. So we would do, um, some eye charts and we have cones and I have balls and we'll do things where I'm kicking soccer balls or she's got to move to a cone that matches what it is she's looking at on these charts. So it's very general, but nonetheless, it's still information processing. Then we would do some drills where her sister would come in or there'd be other athletes in here and they're chasing each other or they're trying to be the first one to this ball or this first one to the space or something where they're competing. And then we try to incorporate more and more athletes. Um, I have a very small facility and Pittsburgh weather's just gray and gloomy all the time. So the majority of the time we were inside, but then when we can get outside, yeah, I have a little grass uh, area outside where uh, we're chasing people, getting away from people, trying to do some, some one-on-one drills, two-on-two drills, things like that. And then right across the field is uh, – or right across the road is a soccer field. And I trained her soccer team this year. So uh, one to two times a week I go to the field and we do all types of perceptual and action type of type of drills, more of a constraints-led approach. But uh, for her it was more general to specific. And now with some healthy athletes that we're trying to work on preventively, still, again, as I mentioned, I, I view things very similar. Uh, the, just the progress might, might be a lot more – um, might be faster to more of that open, open side of things, uh, versus using just the boards and stuff like that. But we're always, we're always doing something. Um, you know, I kind of split my, my gym here where one half is weights and then the other half is just kind of open space. And so that's kind of how I do my workouts. 50% of it's the weights and 50% is the perceptual side. Yeah, I think that's, that's it. It's, um, I think as I talk, this being myself and talking to other coaches, that almost represents, I think, the direction we're headed in some level is more field work, more perception work, more more dynamic work, uh, more work that's representative of sport uh, percentage-wise compared to just spending the whole time lifting a barbell. And I think it was Corey, Corey Schlesinger, I don't know if it, was, if it was half and half or maybe a third, a third, a third, but like a third weight's a third like wrestling mat to grapple around in a third field area. <laughs> That'd be pretty rad too. If you had a big enough space, right? Um, if some spaces that wouldn't yeah, absolutely. yield much of anything, but, uh, if you had a big enough space, that would be fantastic. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, that's definitely where my mind has gone. And a lot of my thought has gone as well. And so, yeah, so you got the, so we talked about the perception side, the vision. So vision perception, that does lead me into the idea of, um, the soft skills and hard skills in the sense of just change of direction ability. So if we're looking at all the facets of this, and I, I do want to reiterate too, I mean, we're, we're not just talking about injury prevention. We're talking about being a good athlete in general. They're one in the same, right? It's not, this mm-hmm. isn't just, um, the show could really be called a few different things. It could be called being a better athlete or, or preventing an ACL tear. Um, 
but from uh just raw and we've we've done this show about i don't know what it was 15 episodes ago or 20 episodes ago where we were talking about perception reaction versus if you want to call it a battle or whatever but i think they're, they everything can live together but what's your thought on just change of direction ability and acl issues or knee prevention issues and in, in the way that an athlete generally changes direction and general strategies well I think it's pretty well documented that there are biomechanical aspects to tearing an ACL. Um, so there are certain uh, movement KPIs that I look for um, as far as, you know, leading to possible injury. Um, you know, uh, it's okay to do, you know, a, a movement if I don't find it correct every now and then and be able to be adaptable is not something I'm trying to inhibit. But there are just, there are limiting there are KPIs that can lead to injuries. So for instance, I'm not a huge proponent of, uh, cutting off the inside leg, meaning the first step they take is that and a crossover step. Um, I'm okay with a crossover step if it's the second step. So meaning I want the outside leg being the leg in which we plant and cut off of, and then the second leg. So where that is in relation to the body is something I look for. And then where the body is in relation to the legs because uh, you know there's studies done on trunk lean uh too much excessive trunk leaning and and posture and acl tears as well um so those are kind of things we work on so um we do have a uh, a cutting technique that we work on but it's very quickly built into a perceptual aspect of it so i want the technique to be adaptable um, rather than just this closed drill where they're just doing it from cone to cone or they're just doing it, whatever, there's always a perceptual aspect to it. So once they got the general idea to it, um, to what we're, we're looking for, we work on one, the technical component of it, um, based off a of perceptual aspect. And then two, we'll work on the physical abilities as it relates to the cutting technique. So we do both general and specialized exercises to bring that out further. Um, uh, and then bring it more to a, uh, more and more and more to an open, uh, and skill, uh, where we're doing it based off of, you know, chasing someone, getting away from someone, trying to get to a space, close space, whatever it is. Uh, um, I guess in a nutshell, quickly, how I, I try to build that. Cool, man. Uh, yeah, it makes sense to me. I think if I think of it almost like a block start in track and field, but laterally, right? Like I know that it's incorrect just from a performance perspective, just to push all off the front leg in the blocks or the front leg in a three-point stand. Both legs are pushing. It make it kind of, I feel like there might be some similarity there between if the inside leg or that front leg is doing everything, then there's more things that could go wrong. There's that you're you're closing down the degrees of freedom, if you I guess in that perceptual talk, right? You when you're using that outside leg more so you have a little bit more degrees of freedom. There's less that could potentially go wrong, I guess, or less that can get concentrated to go wrong. It, that makes sense to me. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to share with you a little bit about what our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, now has available in their store. You hear me mention in the outro of the show all the time about the free lap timing system in the K-Box, which I have and use regularly. But today I wanted to share a little bit more about the bar speed monitoring units that Simply Faster has, which is the GymWare and the new portable flex unit. So let me start with the GymWare. I mention it regularly on the show. It's been referred to as the Cadillac of bar speed monitors. Carl Valley calls it a lab inside a lunchbox, as the readings you get out of the GymWare go well beyond typical concentric or just up the up phase of the lift velocities. Rather, you can measure the entire shape of the barbell lift in terms of eccentric velocity, range of motion, and total work done. Total work being awesome, by the way, especially like comparing a long-armed bench presser or a 6'10 squatter versus a 5'11 point guard. So you're getting all these extra metrics that you're not getting on other units. It's perfect for teams wanting to manage the weight room, and the data synchronizes to software platforms such as CoachMe Plus, Team Builder, and Athlete Monitoring. So new to the store is the Flex, which is the ultra-portable and lower-priced travel version of the coach's favorite gym wear. So just like the gym wear, the Flex measures the shape of each rep, range of motion, total work done, eccentric dynamics. So for this and the gym wear, this is the advantage that a force plate would have over just knowing how high you jumped. You're getting many other metrics and information that go into this unit of work. Compared to similar portable bar speed monitors, this unit gets the entire rep 
rather than a fraction. So you have here two awesome tools. And if you're interested in upping your game in the velocity-based training and bar speed world, I would definitely recommend heading to the store at simplyfaster.com and checking into these two units. All right, let's get back to the show. I think, uh, all right, so you, we talked about a little bit about, so we've talked about, we're talking about some of these different factors, um, strength, because uh, I think that it is very easy to, again, live in one bucket. Um, and I think that it's, like you said, there's a lot of talk of, oh, well, let's do this, I mean, eccentrically, for eccentric strength to help prevent or whatnot. Um, I mean, you're just sticking pretty still generally, just one by 20. I don't, are you doing anything special in sort of tempos or any sort of thing like that on the strength end? Or are you, are you sticking general there and being specific on the other elements? So, yeah, our training program, even our rehab program are, are very similar. We start one by 20. Uh, that's just my starting point. I start that with, with everyone. Um, exercise selection is a missing conversation that I, I, I don't hear a lot when people talk about one by 20, uh, they just get caught up with sets and reps, but it's exercise selection that matters. So for us, we're trying to cover our basis. Uh, so we do a lot for hip abduction, adduction, uh, flexion, extension, knee flexion, extension, uh, ankle sitting, standing calf raises, all types of, you know, uh, uh, inversion, eversion, uh, the Marina bitch, uh, wobble, wobble boards and stuff like that. Um, and then as in that time, uh, we're still working on the cutting technique. We're doing it in different directions, still always based off of a reaction. Um, and then as the program strength program progresses, the exercise selection now will start to become more, a little more specialized and start to resemble aspects of the cutting, running technique, throwing technique, whatever biodynamic structure we're trying to improve. Um, so we'll do lunges uh, and how we do our lunges resemble uh, the cutting technique that we're, we're working on. Uh, the strength exercise will start to, you know, we'll start adding in some eccentrics and isometrics, but it's only, you know, components of what we do. It's not the whole facet. It's not a whole training program. And then uh, the cutting technique will start to get into more multiple cuts, multiple changes, direction, multiple reactions. And then as the workout program progresses, we get into more specialized strength exercises. So our cutting, our, our, our lunges will become more explosive or plyometric or eccentric dynamic, um, or isometric dynamic, sorry, um, in how we perform them, which will marry very well into the jump exercises and our jump progressions. Uh, with, with a lot of lateral stuff that we do, uh, which marries very well into our cutting technique, which by this time is now very open and reactive to multiple people and stimulus. Um, and so that's how we kind of tie it all in together. Uh, tell me a little, you, you said you did do a little eccentric work. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Are you using, um, like K box stuff for that? Are you, are you using barbells or body weight? Yes. That well, it kind of depends. So, uh, with my rehab, clients like uh the girl soccer player that had k box was a large part of what we did um i'd like that as far as not completely beating up her joints uh i actually find that the k box is more joint friendly than traditional barbells um so yeah she's getting that with the one by 20 um that will be a component of a lot of my athletes programs that are you know have been with me for maybe three four years is more k box work uh we do dyna- uh we do delay squats um, so this is like one of the last exercises we'll do. So feet are underneath the hips, um, and we're working eccentrically and isometrically in four various positions where we're lowering the load for four seconds, holding it for four seconds, lowering it for four seconds, holding it for four seconds, doing that four times. And then we try to overcome with a dynamic movement. So they jump. So I'll generally start with dumbbells and then progress them to barbells when I feel that they can jump with a barbell and not have them hurt their spine. Um, for college and older athletes, we can do that with, uh, GHRs, um, that no one's, that's a variant of a GHR that no one I've seen talk about and doing it and even calf raises. Uh, and those are a bitch on standing calf raises doing it in that fashion. Um, so we can incorporate it in aspects of more specialized movements, um, you know, even knee drives, but, uh, yeah, so it's incorporated, but it's not everything for some, uh, uh, like let's say football players, uh, offensive linemen or wrestlers, you know, we'll build it more into the upper body exercise as well, doing delay pushups or bench press or, uh, even rows and stuff like that. But yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. The, the whole delay 
Uh, I really like that in the sense. So basically, you're I'm in a squat and I'm dropping down. I'm stopping at like a quarter squat. Stop at a half squat. Stop at a three quarters. Stop at a deep squat and then come up. Or like a few second pauses. Well, it like depends. That. So the range of motion is going to be dependent on the sport and what you're trying to improve. So generally, uh, let's just say a soccer player, since that's the predominant sport that I, I work with, uh, a quarter squat. So our by the fourth by the fourth squat, we're only in about a quarter squat. So um, Maybe maybe it's slightly lower, but it's about a quarter squat uh, because that's generally the range of motion which uh, they they their their thigh will get to when they when they're sprinting or when they're or they're changing direction. They won't get too much lower than that. So uh, it's generally that for my wrestlers or offensive linemen. Yeah, I'll have them get uh, maybe lower, maybe to you know a half squat, ninety degrees. Um, you know, and we'll change the position of their legs when they do it sometimes for those for those athletes, but. Uh, um, for for my runners and my jumpers, it's generally about a quarter squat, so they can they can work up to eventually pretty heavy heavy loads um, relative to their body weight when when they do these. But we're only doing them for one to three reps. There's no more than that. Uh, if they go more than three reps, they're just taxed. Um, it's it's quite fatiguing. Yeah, the time under tension probably adds up. Like each rep probably does take a little substantial oh, yeah. amount of time. Six, Sixteen seconds. That's a bitch. <laughs> it reminds me a little bit of I. I remember I I bought those like jump soles with the proprioceptors back when I was 16 or 17 and I was watching the video that they put out with those. I wish it's probably buried at my parents' house. I hope it's buried at my parents' house somewhere because if it ever I ever find it and dust it off, um, Marv Marinovich was like the guy who teamed up with them. And one of the drills they were doing, of course, this is all with the jump soles on, right? But it's, I mean, you can do it without it just as easily or just as well. And he, it was on like a super cat or something and they were doing kind of just that it was like they were they were going through the squat range but stopping almost every inch or two inches or something like that like hitting a little isometric a lot more that's that they probably did like 10 delays or 15 but there was a lot of them and it does make me think about i i don't know i just think that's a really interesting way that we de- tend not to think and then also playing around a little bit with some of the stuff that uh in the uh, the weight room, the creativity in the weight room episode with Mike, with Michael Zufel and Tyler Yerby. And, um, the idea too, uh, kind of sticks in my head of allowing athletes to maybe pick a different, maybe randomizing the delay a little bit too, or something where it becomes, um, it could just become something that, I don't know. Like, I think I'm sure that if you, when you do it, the delay is a little different no matter what, every time anyways, because of the repetition without repetition principle, like people are just going to random uh, manual or on their own pick some different spots but i think i just think there's a lot of creativity a lot of dynamic stuff going on in that that we typically don't see in a regular up and down barbell lifter heck even like an eccentric lift there's there's a lot more of that explosive isometric co-contraction control the joint um, action going on yeah i i mean i asked doc because you know the whole big craze now about isometrics and I think before that was eccentrics and stuff like that. You know, the big craze like Doc, Doctor Yasa. Sorry, when I when I say Doc, um, he told me and uh, uh, that the Russians. You know, there's not anything that the Russians didn't look into. So if it was important, they would be doing it. Or they would have done it. And not that they didn't think that eccentrics or isometrics are important, but not early on in a training uh, career and a training program. Is it that important? Uh, you should just work on general strength and stuff like that. And so they kind of, and, and uh, I hope I don't mess this up, but they kind of looked at it as, as kind of like uh, how we're familiar with, with the percentage of general to specific exercises when an athlete starts, right? So maybe the first year in training, it should be 10% eccentric, isometric, you know, 90% general, just concentric lifting. And then as the athlete's uh, yearly program progresses or, or they progress year after year, it kind of more and more switches to that. And so, you know, I don't know where I, I found that or if it's in any of the Soviet sports reviews, but I do remember having that conversation with Dr. Yesis about it. So that's just kind of generally the more I work with an athlete, the more eccentric isometrics I start putting into our program. Right on. Cool, man. Uh, so covering those bases, I, I, I feel like that encapsulates a lot of your program. Was there anything we missed? Uh, so we've talked, uh, we talked perception, action, vision, strength. You got a little bit of the plyometrics. I'm sure we could probably, I mean, that is probably an important part of it. Maybe yeah. let's cover that for just a few minutes before we get to sure. the next question. Sure. Um, yeah. So our jumping program, 
marries very well our jumping progression uh marries very well with our running which matches very well with our lifting program and our technical component if there's a technical component we're trying to trying to improve and work on so everything's got to kind of be in sync uh so that way uh adaptive energy isn't necessarily thrown uh to just any one thing or we're kind of getting uh something out of everything um so our jump progression starts you know extensive to intensive to plyometric from unweighted to weighted um uh, short coupling to long coupling, if you're, anyone's familiar with the Verkashansky uh, model. Um, and so, you know, in the one by twenties, we're just doing very extensive jumping, trying to work on basic rhythm and elasticity. Um, and then as we progress, uh, you know, we'll start incorporating more weights into some of the jumps. Uh, and then, you know, when we get to the eights, if they're working on strength, our, our jumps kind of match that. So we'll do more single effort jumps which might be a single effort leg to leg jump so if i'm standing on my right leg i'm trying to jump as far to the left as i can landing on my left leg hold that for three to five seconds and then repeat going from left leg to right leg right so we're trying to work on the power output of the ability to jump from leg to leg side to side and then that might turn into a plyometric where we're trying to go side to side as fast as we can um you know more for speed and and uh distance uh and so we'll do that before the competitive season. Uh, generally, we try to do our plyos, I don't know, maybe six weeks before a competitive season just because uh, it takes a little bit longer to get that full adaptation out of that. So, yeah. Yeah, right on. Um, you mentioned uh, the girl that you had gotten back from an ACL, I think, in five and a half months. And I know you've had really good success with the very speedy reconditioning and recovery uh, with the, with those athletes, take us inside a little bit of, of, I know obviously it's multifaceted. It's not just one thing, but what are yeah. some things that are working together to help bring athletes back faster? Uh, well, when I get an athlete like her, so I was fortunate. I've had, uh, several, uh, girls, uh, unfortunately who tore their ACL, but, uh, fortunate that they trusted me with their rehab, um, you know, I don't do the full rehab per se because I'm not, I can't, I'm not a uh, PT or a Cairo. So w- they still go to PT, but what uh, mainly then we have conversation with, with their PT, their PT is trying to do is get restore range of motion back. That's one of the first things we're trying to work on is get range of motion back. Um, but for me, you know, we kind of touched upon it a little bit earlier in the conversation. You know, there's what, depending on where you get your information, there's what, 13 biological systems. No, uh, no system works alone. No system gets hurt alone and no system heals alone. So I try to have this 10,000 step view or, or, or step back view of uh, our, our injuries and, and our athletes. And the first thing I want to do is to seek to fix what is being protected. Um, so anytime there's an injury, there's automatically going to be protection of the injured site. So talking about knees, you know, uh, the knee is going to be protected. The body is going to be protected. Of that, so uh, scars, for instance, can be very disruptive to fascia and meridian lines, um, and, and can cause pain and, and restriction. So, uh, once an athlete's scar is healed, we'll do various things for the healing, which you know we can use arnica, uh, MSM, things like that around it uh, to help heal it. Um, uh, microcurrent can help uh, help with the scar tissue uh, and, and the fascia to heal. Uh, I also do a fascial or a scar. To, uh, scar release technique once the scars have healed to kind of release some of the fascia and tight tension around that um you know uh lymphatic uh you know everyone you've had corpus and victor and, and those guys on talking about rpr douglas heel um you know i do touch for health i do apply kinesiology so neurolymphatic uh work is in there because maybe the lymph uh, the lymph system has kind of now become blocked uh to that area and so if we're trying to help control inflammation we want to get the we want to make sure the lymphatic system is is flowing well um and and another aspect of controlling inflammation is we use a lot of food and nutritional supplements um for that so for instance black currant and chlorophyll are great anti-inflammatories um again it's not to say we don't want inflammation we just want to be able to help control it so it doesn't get out of hand it's more naturally um it's more it's more natural as far as a healing process goes and then grounding mats um I know you and I have had uh, conversations uh, off camera before about the use of grounding mats. I'm big into uh, earthing and grounding, um, 
know, anyone unfamiliar with that, it's, you know, in a, in a nutshell, it's, it's becoming in contact with the earth, getting, getting in contact with you have to go stare, stand barefoot or lay, lay, you know, skin to skin with, with the earth. Uh, cause you know, voltage moves, always moves from an area of high voltage to low voltage. And the earth is a high voltage area. And when our body's kind of beaten up, it becomes low voltage. So that voltage will be transferred. Those, uh, electrons will be transferred into, into us, which it can help, uh, with the implement inflammatory process. Uh, uh, I don't remember what the name of the site is, but if you just look up grounding earthing, there's a great site that's got, oh man, they got, I think 22 peer reviewed, uh, studies on inflammation and grounding and the positive effects mm-hmm. grounding has on, on that. So that's, that's awesome. So that is a cheap and easy tool to use. Hey, just go lay in the grass for a half hour, a couple times a day. Uh, if you don't have that, get some grounding mats, go sleep on a grounding mat. So, uh, that's something I use both personally for myself and, and for, uh, my family. Uh, and I have a grounding mat and grounding pads here. So I have uh, a bag of patches that I loan to my athletes. Uh, go check that your outlet is grounded, which there's a quick and easy little test they can do. And then you just put these patches uh, in and around their knees or put them on the bottom of their feet and go to sleep and that's it. Um, and that can get you the same benefits as being in contact with the grass. And that's an easy way to ground for, you know, seven to eight hours while you're just sleeping in your bed. Um, and then, uh, we try to look at the reflex systems. That's an area of interest. You know, I kind of go down this weird rabbit hole of, I I like to thank, uh, Dr. Yassis, but also Dan Fichter, our mutual friend, Dan Fichter for this rabbit hole of studying weird sciences. So, uh, um, the reflexes of the body are very fascinating to me. And, and, uh, you know, the withdrawal reflex, for instance, is, is one, uh, that, you know, anytime you have an injury, Let's just say to the lower extremity, you roll your you roll your ankle, you hurt your knee. The body's going to start limping to protect that. Well, that, that's a withdrawal reflex. So there's things we can do to help reset that reflex so it doesn't stay on because our reflexes are meant to protect the body, and sometimes they can be left on after injuries. And so uh, through the use of uh, primal reflex release technique, there's things we can do that I can do to help uh, offset that and turn off those reflexes, which. If our defense system's down, our nervous system's going to, our, our autonomic system's going to relax, become more parasympathetic tone and things like that. Uh, and through the use of autogenic uh, uh, or uh, reciprocal inhibition, I'm sorry, uh, techniques, we can help calm, you know, particular muscles or any, any kind of anything around the knee to help get it to those muscles to stop being so guarded and relax. And then um, something more recently that I've kind of, really gone down the rabbit hole that's been a game changer for me is uh, uh square one system which uh square one's the first as far as i know the first motor control restoration uh, system that helps with the body to be able to withstand ground reaction forces um you know anytime there's stress an injury anything like that uh certain joints are going to become more more protective um you know compensations the, the brain's ability to kind of rewire things um, but sometimes we don't want compensations, uh, and, 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 you know, the brain's kind of protect a, a joint, let's say the knee. Well, other things are going to try to pick up the slack for that. So through the use of, uh, square one systems, we can help, uh, you know, help ask the brain and the nervous system to kind of get, you know, release and, and stop protecting that area. So it can withstand ground reaction forces once again, and, and other things don't have to pick up slack for it. So then we don't develop other issues because what's the biggest uh, predictor for a future injury? Well, it's a previous injury. Um, and so, you know, those are just some of the things we'll go to, you know, that I start with. And then the other aspect is, you know, how do we nourish the structures that, that we need to heal? Um, and I kind of touched upon that with nutrition. Um, you know, so there's a lot of things we'll do nutritionally, uh, from overall diet, to uh, the whole food supplements to help restore and, and replenish, uh, what is lost and what is, uh, needed to, uh, get back to those structures, the ACL to ligament and tendons, um, you know, and then, you know, electric stim is a huge, uh, aspect of our rehab. So I have, uh, not a therostim, but it's something like that, like an ARP wave that has a DC potential. Um, you know, and I know you're a fan of the ARP wave and, uh, the role the DC potential has or or waveforms have for healing and for, um, rehabilitation. That's a whole other podcast that you should have, but that's a large part of what we do as well. Uh, and then on top of it, one by 20 in itself, uh, is a huge, uh, a huge game changer as far as just rehab. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a training program, but it's also a rehab program at the same time. 
because uh, it helps strengthen ligaments and tendons faster, get more blood flow to the area, improves capillary density, which will help with more blood flow to that area and get more things moving. And so it kind of ties together, uh, you know, all, all of what we're trying to work on. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of stuff. Uh, just to unpack one thing of that really quickly. And with square one, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause, uh, I know I'm going to looking to get Sean on the show here shortly and probably right after the show, I'm actually going to email him and make sure I try to get a time set up. But with the primal reflex system, that's something I'd like to dig into for our last portion of this today. Cause I had yeah. learned a little bit of that from Dan Victor myself. And I was really amazed. I, just with the like the good side helping the bad side, and we we all I think we talk about the crossover ability of the body, but maybe we, I don't think we do it as much as we probably should or think about. So, could you talk a little bit about that primal reflex, the good side, the bad side, and and how yeah. that works and what you're doing with it? Well, uh, actually, uh, you bring up uh, you bring up some one uh, primal reflex release is again a little different than what you're asking. What you're asking for is total motion release. Uh, uh, total motion release is using the good side to fix the bad side, which has a, you know, the reason why it works is there's a crossover effect in the brain. Um, uh, so for instance, for any listeners here, anytime there's an asymmetry in the body, uh, left ACL injury, left knee problem, right shoulder problem, whatever you have, if you work on the good side, uh, nine out of 10 times, it can at least decrease your pain by at least 50%. Uh, I would say more, but I don't want to make any claims and then people DM me saying, Hey, it was less than 50% or, <laughs> or anything like that. But, uh, um, so for instance, if you were to do an arm raise, uh, just keep your right arm straight, bring it all the way up to your ear and then compare it to the left side is one side better than the other. Or, um, a lot of times with ACL we'll do, we'll do a uh, hip flexion. So I'll have them stand, stand still, or you can even do the sitting if they can't be weight bearing. Uh, and just raise your right leg up and then raise your left leg up. And is one leg better than the other? Well, if let's just say the left leg is the leg you tore your ACL and you can't raise it up as well as your right, then do two sets of 20 on the right leg. And it could be two sets of 10. It could be three sets of 10. It could be whatever. I usually start with a little more volume um, just to have that, but you don't want it to the point where it's super fatiguing and it's, you know, the person's leg is just on fire because they're doing 40 reps of a leg raise. But then, Usually, once they've done two sets of 20 and you go back and test the left leg, it will raise higher. Um, and then, you know, rule number one in physical therapy is if it works, you do it again. So after they've done it and if it has any kind of improvement, we just do it again. Um, and we just keep doing it until it doesn't get any improvement. So, for instance, I have a, um, I had a girl softball player who uh, had left shoulder problems. She came to me um, after going to nine weeks of physical therapy and after nine weeks of physical therapy, I said, well, a scale one to 10, 10 is someone stabbing you with a knife. Where's your pain? And she says, it's an eight. I said, you went to nine weeks of the physical therapy and you're still eight out of 10. That's, that's a bullshit. So I'm not even lying. I wish I videoed this and I can, you know, so that way people don't think I'm making this shit up. Uh, I just had her do a whole bunch of exercises on her right arm, a whole bunch of movements on her right arm and her shoulder pain went down to a zero. And that was it. I didn't even touch her. I literally just the other day was ordering food at this Italian restaurant. And while I was waiting because they're being super slow, I overheard one of the waiters or one of the people behind the uh, bar talking to the cook about how he likes to lift, but his shoulder's killing him. And I said, well, hey, what motions bother your shoulder? He said, well, it's anything with this. Do you ever have problems with your, your infraspinatus? I said, yeah. Uh, I said, here, what motions hurt? He said this. I said, well, try doing it on your good arm, your left arm 20 times. He looked at me looked weird, but he said, okay. So he did it. And then he's like, well, now my shoulder isn't have that popping anymore and the pain's gone. What, what the hell did you just do? And I just took my food and walked out. <laughs> I, I love it. I, I think, uh, as I go through all this too, I, I think that as we go through the journey of the different modalities and the different courses and the different hands-on techniques, something I've learned is I tend to try to find ways for athletes to relieve their own pain by them moving first. And I like Dr. Tommy John talks all about you heal you and the idea of, before we do anything else, if you can move as the athlete and do it yourself and do something to give pain relief to yourself, that's super empowering. And so, oh, even, absolutely. and, uh, even, I think there was a show that Tommy did where it's like, if you can't just move in any way you can, that doesn't elicit pain and the next day it's gonna be better. But in, in this scenario, we're talking about, um, instant, like the, like something that's on one side and that will instantly transmit to the other side. And, there's there's so much power in that. It's really empowering, and I, I think it's a really fantastic. It's easy too. I mean, I'm sure that you can go layers deep into it, but on a 
very simple note. It's just you're just trying to get the movement that you can't do on the injured side, right, with the good side and doing it 20 times or a few sets. And- yeah, it's it's so easy. And uh, it, it's almost people when, when I know Dan had this experience and I'm having this experience now when I talk to people about it or when I do even when I do it with people, they look at me like I'm crazy and it just doesn't necessarily register. Like when Dan first showed me that this maybe three, four years ago, I was like, all right, that's kind of cool. And then I just kind of moved on. And it really didn't hit me until I don't know, maybe a year ago, uh, especially with a lot of my adult clients, like how powerful it is and how easy it is and how how fast it works. So uh, uh, I, I went all board and, you know, got all certified and everything like that. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm balls deep into it, but it's so easy. And you're, you're right. Actually, it's so easy to teach where these people, my clients can get, do it themselves. Um, you can do it part of their warm up. A lot of my athletes will do these part of their warm up. Uh, I have had golfers put on 30 yards on their on their drive uh, from just doing these in the warm ups. Uh, uh, baseball players will do this, uh, or softball players will do this as part of their warm ups. Just check their ranges of motion if there's a difference, and just work the good side. Um, you know, for any anyone who has pain, this is part of their warm up. They do it first thing in the morning, um, and, and it could literally be just about almost any motion you want it to be. That's the cool thing. Um, and even still, let's just say uh, that girl's shoulder pain didn't go down completely to a uh, a zero. Let's just say it was still a two or a three, which is better. But the perfectionist in me want a zero. Sometimes if you go down and you look at the hips, and I'm sure you know this, Joel, go down and look at the hips and you check, hey, range of motion, flexion, or, or internal rotation, external rotation, and you have them work the good side of their hips, uh, you'll find that uh, that will fix their shoulder pain. Um, it's cool. So that's why with total motion release, we kind of do a, a, a top down movement approach. And then you start with what's the shittiest one. What is the, what is the worst movement? You start there and you see what kind of global effects has on all the other movements. And then you go to the second one and you know, her shoulder range motion was the first thing. So we worked on that, that got it down to like a two or three. And then we looked at the next worst thing. It was her hips. We improved her hips and then the shoulder pain went down to a zero. That's awesome, man. It, it makes me think too of the, there's that art to it as well. Find that joint. That's the linchpin for everything else. It's kind of like a masterful acupuncturist who knows that one spot that's going to unlock everything else to a degree. So I think there's a lot of power there. It's cool to talk about things that anyone can do right now. Um, Obviously you can go down the rabbit hole and become more specialized, but the principle is so simple and something that's effective. So I think that's really cool. And um, thanks for thanks for your time sharing that insight into all these facets of the the this this thing we call I don't know you really call it it's a injury it's it's being a better athlete it's being a better human being mover. Um, this is a good, a good training to program is going to be a good rehab program, which is going to be a good prevention program. It should be all one and the same. Anyone that tries to sell you a different is selling you snake oil. I think it's just bullshit. <laughs> yeah, this is good talking about it today. Thank you so much for your insight, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thanks, Joel. Appreciate. It all right that wraps up another show thanks for being here if you enjoy this show and this podcast you can really help us out by leaving us a rating or review on itunes or stitcher uh, whatever you're listening to just to help spread the word of what we're doing and help this show reach the ears of those people who would be helped by it much thanks to our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. They've been a longtime sponsor of this show, and they have an awesome store and blog, and a great company for any piece of sports technology, timing systems, as well as training equipment. So be sure to check them out. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest. Have a good one.